Open your Bibles to Romans. Excuse me. I'm so used to saying that after so many years. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Romans. Did I, say, did I really say that again? 1 Corinthians 15. A little editing we'll do on this recording. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking this morning at a time together around the world that I've entitled, I Told You So, The Anchoring Facts of the Faith. And we'll draw our attention to a significant text about the gospel on this Easter Sunday morning, 2022. I want to read the first eight verses for you to kind of set that in our mind. We'll be looking at these eight verses in in um, detail, and then going later in the chapter to pick up some application in just a bit. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if... You hold fast the word which I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Harry Houdini. This is a name that's almost universally known. Houdini was born on March 24th, 1874. He was born Eric Wise, but changed his name to honor his spiritual hero, French magician Robert Houdin. Harry Houdini gained fame as a magician and then later as a stunt performer. And finally, he was mostly known then and now as an escape artist and for his escape acts. It was said of Houdini that he had the flexibility of an eel and multiple lives as of a cat. His acts involved escapes from locked handcuffs, Escape from being sealed in a giant milk jug filled with water. He was sewn up in a canvas bag and escaped from it with the bag still sewn. He was even known for one of his most famous escapes from being buried alive and escaping the coffin. Eventually, he was most famous for escaping a maximum security prison with witnesses watching. Somehow he escaped all of them. However, on October 31st, 1926, Harry Houdini died. 
It might surprise you that before his death, he told his wife and made a bit of a pact and a contract with her that he believed that he could escape death. He said, if there's any way, Bess, out of the grave, I will find it. In fact, he told her that he would make contact with her on the anniversary of their wedding for each year. They should meet together and reunite. Well, for 10 years after his death, on their anniversary, his wife lit a light under his portrait, waited all night for something to happen. And year after year after year, for 10 years, Nothing happened. At the end of that 10 years, she turned out the light, stopped the annual ritual of waiting for him to contact her on their anniversary. Bottom line is Houdini had pulled off countless escapes, but from death, he could not escape, though he had predicted that he would. During the Three years of his public ministry, Jesus Christ of Nazareth told his disciples one day he would be in Jerusalem and mistreated and tortured, ultimately killed. But he also was explicit that after he was killed, that he would escape death, that he would come back from death to life. He explicitly predicted his death and resurrection at least three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first time he predicted his death and resurrection was in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, Luke 9. He had just fed the multitudes and said that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed and he will rise again. A second time he predicted his death and resurrection was in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. This occurred shortly after the transfiguration where he took the disciples up in Caesarea Philippi and peeled back his flesh and showed them his glory. He took Peter, James, and John with him. They saw Christ in his heavenly manifestation of his glory. And there he told them he was going to be taken to Jerusalem. He would suffer be mistreated, be killed, and rise again. Very interestingly, in Mark 9 and Luke 9, at that moment, says the disciples wondered what he meant, but were too afraid to ask. The final third time that we have that he predicted his death and resurrection, Mark 20, Mark 10, excuse me, Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18, they describe this third time of his prediction He spoke to his disciples as they were heading up to Jerusalem for Passover from Jericho. He said this time he would be taken up, he would be going up to Jerusalem where he would be mocked, scourged, crucified, and then rise again. On this occasion also, the disciples said they did not understand what Jesus was saying because the meaning was hidden from them. And they would learn on Friday of that week exactly what he meant. Listen, like Houdini, Jesus died. Like Houdini, 
Jesus was buried. Like Houdini, Jesus promised escape from death. But unlike Harry Houdini, in that empty promise that he would come back to life, Jesus did not stay dead. His grave is empty. His promise fulfilled. He remains alive today. We could say it like this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the greatest I told you so in history. Martin Luther wrote of the resurrection of Jesus, it is the greatest importance and attaches, all the greatest importance is attached to this article of faith. For were there no resurrection, we should have neither comfort nor hope. All that hope in Christ would be in vain. John Calvin said, the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith, the chief point of the gospel, and the main article of religion. Henry Morris wrote, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is is absolute truth, end quote. Well, the passage before us in these eight verses, we see the resurrection. But the resurrection only is understood after a burial, and a burial only takes place after a death. So in order to get to the resurrection, he goes through Jesus' death and the reason for it, his burial, his proof of it, and his resurrection, which I think will draw our attention so well to the, the sweet facts of the gospel on this Easter Sunday. We'll dissect this passage and discover together three historical pillars of the Christian faith. Three historical pillars of the Christian faith. Christian faith is made up of historical pillars. It's made up of theological understanding of those pillars and a response to those theological realities. We'll look at three historical pillars of the Christian faith. The first is in verses 1 to 3, obviously his meaningful death. The meaningful death of Jesus, number one. Paul said, now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Stop right there. Whatever he says next is important. I'm about to make known to you the essence, the summary, the core of the gospel. But before he gets to that, he goes back into, into the past. The gospel, which I proclaimed, which I preached to you, that he'd been a faithful preacher of the gospel which you received, they had believed and followed the gospel, in which you stand, they were continuing on in the gospel, by which you are saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God? Pain of sin? The devil's curse? Hell itself? And then there's an if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul first looks to his past ministry among the Corinthians, recounting what he had preached to them, what they had done with that truth. They are standing still firm in the message. They hadn't walked away from it. He does give a caveat, though, and this is an important note for us, a little footnote to add. 
that it is possible for a person to have intellectually assented to the facts of the gospel and believe them to be true, but yet not to be converted, not to be saved. He said that would amount to believing in vain. What does it mean to believe in vain? Well, James tells us what it means to believe in vain. He says if you have faith, you believe the facts about the gospel, and that faith is not accompanied by application by works, then that faith is dead. It's not real. That's what Paul's talking about here. So how do you avoid a dead faith? He tells you right there in the verse. It's a, it's a faith in which you stand and a faith in which you hold fast the word. You continue to believe the truth of the gospel. Then he gets to the essence, the meaningfulness of the gospel. Verse 3. He recounts, for I delivered to you as of maximum importance, first importance, the top priority. What I also received, I didn't tell you to believe anything and to live any way that I haven't believed and I don't live. That, here it is, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Paul told the Romans, the wages of sin is death. The one who sins deserves death. And yet here we find out that Christ died, not for his sins. Do you see the pronoun there? He died for, for our sins. One of the ways that my wife and I tried to teach our sons the gospel as they were young, and they would often err and sin and would deserve the rod of reproof, reproof and we would apply that in a, um, in a strategic way. And after that time, I remember so many debriefs with the boys, more than I could count, more times than not, and trying to explain to them the essence of the gospel that you understand what you did wrong. And they would say, yes, Mom, yes, Dad. You understand what you deserve? Yes, Mom, I I understood. Think of it this way. We did wrong. And Jesus came and took the discipline instead of us, for us. He, he took our spanking. He took the rod for us. He did it instead of us. He did it for us. That little word in the Greek and in the English is, is um, elastic in its meaning. And what I mean by that is, for Christ died for our sins. He died for us as a benefit to us to, to cover our sins. But he died for us, meaning he did it instead of us as a substitute. He died for our sins. He died for our sins and he never sinned. He did nothing wrong ever in thought or in deed and and yet he died. He died the death we deserved for us instead of us for our sins. Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself carried, he bore, he took on himself our 
sins. Listen to those pronouns. He himself bore our sins in his body where? On the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, his wounds, we are what? Healed. What a death. We've looked many times at Romans chapter 5, which illustrates this so well. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, what a state, unable to do anything about our lost condition, while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we were helpless and ungodly. It gets worse. Then he gives an illustration for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, Someone may dare even to die. So he, he sets up this illustration of a, of a hero, a, a noble friend who would see someone that he loved and knew in trouble and he would die for them. He, he jumps on the grenade and absorbs the shrapnel for his friends in the bunker. He, he pushes someone out of the way and gets run over himself by the car. He dies as a noble act of love for a good man, for his friend. And then Paul says, but God, in a strange way, he says, it's noble for someone to die, someone they respect and love. It's noble to die for the noble. Not God. But God didn't do that. He didn't die for the noble. He didn't die for the, the deserving but God, Paul says, demonstrates his own love in that while we were not noble or a good man or a righteous man, while we were yet sinners, Christ died, here's our phrase again, instead of us, for us, as a benefit to us. One of the things we looked at when we studied this for several weeks in our study of Romans is it's almost humorous what Paul says next. For Christ died for his enemies. He died for sinners. He died for us. And then he dares to say this, much more than. What do you say after Christ died for us? Much more than. He adds more, having been justified by his blood, given his righteousness, made right before him, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So not only does he save us in the moment, he will save us for eternity from the wrath of God, from eternal hell, and bring us into his heavenly kingdom. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, and he has the, the, the gall to say it again. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He doesn't just save us and put us in a status of being children. He says, I'm going to give you life, eternal life, blessing in this life and in the one to come. And he does it one more time. He, he, unbelievable, he says, and not only this, he's got something to add to that. But we also rejoice, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. No longer enemies, but now friends. No longer the sinners that he died for because of our sin, but children who he adopted out of love and kindness. 
Jesus' death was different than George Washington's death. It was different than any other death. His death had theological significance and meaning. The second historical pillar that Paul points to of the Christian faith is in verse 4, the confirming burial of Jesus. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but it is a very big deal. The confirming burial of Jesus, just the little phrase, and that he was buried. I preached to you that he died for your sins, that substitutionary atonement, and I preached to you he was buried. That seems a little odd. Why, what's, the big, what's the big deal about being buried? An interesting literary feature of all four Gospels is they all give significant detail to the burial. Lots of detail about the burial. Who did it? Who was there? Who witnessed it? Where it was? One of the members of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, had secretly become a follower of Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. After Jesus died on the cross, he asked for the body of Jesus, but he was on a time crunch. It's late in the afternoon. They're approaching sundown. He had to get Jesus buried before sundown on that Friday, that good Friday, because the Jewish Sabbath began at sundown. Not a lot of time. So he had enlisted the help of another follower of Jesus named Nicodemus. We don't know if that was the Nicodemus of John 3, perhaps. They wrapped the body of Jesus in strips of cloth with about 75 pounds of aromatic spices. The body was hurriedly placed in this new tomb, a small little cave hewn out of limestone near place of the skull where he was crucified. I, I believe that the best site attribution for this is under the church of the Holy Sepulcher in Old Town, Jerusalem. And just about 30 yards away is the cave where I think Jesus was truly buried, where Joseph had hewn that out and no one had ever laid there. And he took the body of Jesus to be buried there. We also learn from the gospels that there were four women who witnessed the burial. That's significant. They witnessed the burial. They witnessed the very quick and hurried anointing of the body of Jesus with this, these spices. And they needed to know where it was. And they needed to know that it was un- incomplete because guess what happens Sunday morning? These women come back to finish anointing the body. And they will be oh so unsuccessful Why is this important? Because you don't bury people who are alive. It's confirmation that he was dead. The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus were experts in death. They would not have made the mistake by saying that Jesus of Nazareth was dead unless he was dead. You know why? If they wrongly attributed death to this man and he turned out being alive, they were killed. They knew he was dead. One of them confirming it by piercing Jesus' side with a spear and no response from the corpse. The fact that Jesus was buried is significant evidence that he was dead. Why is it important that he was confirmed to be dead? 
because resurrection from the dead is different than the swoon theory that says he just kind of felt bad on the cross and the coolness of the cave woke him up. No, he was confirmed to be dead. The empty tomb then became the first evidence for Jesus' followers and the first evidence to the Romans and the first evidence to the Jewish leadership that he had risen from the dead. So much so, you heard Myra read from Matthew earlier, they concocted a conspiracy to cover it up. Why does he say, and he was buried? Because he shows us that he wasn't just dead, he was buried dead. Which brings us to the heart of our celebration today, the resurrection of Jesus Three historical pillars of the Christian faith, the meaningful death of Jesus, the confirming burial of Jesus, and thirdly, the promised resurrection of Jesus. He said, I'm going to rise from the dead. And when he did, it was the greatest I told you so in history. He just simply says, with not a lot of fanfare, and that, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Each of the four Gospels provides exquisite detail to the account of Jesus' resurrection, giving details, each one of them, about his coming alive from the dead. One of the more fascinating ones is that John says that they went in and looked after he had raised from the dead. And all of the grave clothes were folded neatly at one end. Moms, if you want to use that as an excuse to teach your kids to make their beds, have at it. But Jesus made his bed after he rose from the dead. He left it neat. Incredible. If you look carefully at the sermons in the book of Acts, the first sermons of Christianity, they all put the accent on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, they don't de-emphasize the cross, but by emphasizing the resurrection, they affirm the cross and say this is why he died. Notice that the resurrection, like his atoning sacrifice, took place according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. Now, you've read your Old Testament many times. Have you seen in the Old Testament where the resurrection of the Messiah was explicit? Probably not unless you were looking, but it's there. And looking back from the New Testament to the Old Testament, you can find it. For example, in Psalm 16, verse 10, David, speaking of the holy Messiah who's coming, said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. He wasn't talking about himself. David died and he decayed. Not the Messiah, because he rose from the grave. And then 
Paul says that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That comes together in Isaiah 53. You're welcome to just listen. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. Who has believed our message? Who has the arm? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, the Messiah, grew up before him, God the Father, like a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. You know, we see all these movies of Jesus with this good-looking actor who would have been a head-turner. This says he was just a normal-looking guy. Nothing that we would have been attracted to. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. In his first coming, he was executed by those he came to save. No esteem. Surely, the pronouns are so important. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, he was cut off from the land of the living. Remember that. But the Lord was pleased to crush him I'm sorry, back in verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That would be Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. What happens to guilt offerings? They, they, they die. He will see his offspring. He didn't stay dead. He saw something after his death. He was alive. Then the next phrase, he will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How does your life prosper if you're dead? It can't. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will future after death justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him future after death. I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he's poured out himself to death. He will have a future inheritance of saved people because he poured himself out to death. Do you hear the resurrection there? You, you can't have blessings if you're dead. He was alive. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded 
for the transgressors. Wow. Now, if someone told you, I mean, think of this realistically. If someone told you, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, but there was, I know someone who was killed last week and I had breakfast with him yesterday. You would rightly be suspicious. <laughs> and if they kept pressing, you would rightly say, I, I would like some proof for that. God knew that, and he gave it to us. Verse 5, and he appeared, and he appeared. An amazing word, he appeared. It might surprise you to know that we have 14 accounts of Jesus appearing to people after the resurrection. Fourteen. And that's just the ones we have recorded. When you break down the narratives, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to, this text says, more than 500 people at one time. There's no other reference to this, and I just can't wait to get to heaven to say, what was that about? At some point, there were people... This is interesting because Paul's telling them that some remain alive to this day that they may know. They probably fled persecution to go to Corinth. 500 people at one time that Jesus taught, spoke to. And that's all it tells us. That's pretty good proof. Ten different locations... And as far as 100 miles from Jerusalem, he appeared to people. They came, he came to individuals. He came to groups of disciples. He came to a large group of 500. And here in verses 4 to 6, six Paul tells us six of the 14 post-resurrection appearances. But there's one that kind of sticks out to me. And I, I'm going to confess to you, I am, I am speculating here. I don't have any authority to tell you this except a good exegetical guess. I think it's fascinating that in verse 7 it says, and he appeared to James. Which James? There's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee and the sons of Thunder. Could have been him, except that usually John and James kind of go together. I think... Is it fair to say, maybe I hope, that this is James who wrote the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And the reason that makes sense to me is, can you imagine, <laughs> can you imagine growing up with a perfect brother? Not one who acted perfect or who thought he, he was perfect. We find out that Jesus had sisters and brothers from Mark James becomes a believer. We know later in Acts and we know later in life. He never even identifies himself as Jesus' brother in the book of James. He says, I'm a slave of Christ. But is it too much to imagine that Jesus appeared to his half-brother? I don't know, but I, I hope so. I think so. What is this about? Why are we here today? Look down at verse 15. Excuse me, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. 
Paul gives us the practical application. He gives us the takeaways from the resurrection. He says, if Christ is preached, verse 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? We know that there were disciples of the Sadducees who didn't believe that there was a resurrection. It was common to believe you're, you're dead and you're done. That was the Epicurean philosophy, eat and be married. Tomorrow you may die. This is all you have. Some of you have think, think there's no resurrection. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This whole foundation of the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead is impossible if you don't believe in the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, here's this word again, is in vain. And your faith is in vain also. Said another way, if, you don't believe, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, there is no foundational reason to believe in the gospel and Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah at all. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. We're bad about revelation because we testified against God that he raised Christ. We lied about God doing something he didn't do. If Jesus didn't rise, and he did not raise, in fact, we are dead and not, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and even if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Said another way, it wasn't just the cross that paid for our sins, it was the resurrection because of the cross. He says, if there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, they've died in Christ, have perished. They're gone, never to be seen again. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to most be pitied. I mean, think what he's saying. If there's no resurrection, if we're living for an eternal life because we will be resurrected like Christ, if we're living for that and that doesn't exist, why are we being good and righteous and holy and, and uh, not exercising all of our sinful in inclinations and proclivities. Why wouldn't we just? No. Your faith, you, people would feel, should feel sorry for you if there's no afterlife, if there's no resurrection. So putting that together, without the resurrection, there's no gospel, there's no hope, there's no reliable revelation, there's no forgiveness, and no eternal life. I think Paul puts a lot of stock in the, the resurrection, don't you? Do you, um, it's Easter Sunday. Do you believe that Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, confirmed dead by piercing his side, buried? And on the third day afterwards, got up from the dead. Are you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, fool enough to believe that? I hope so. Because without it, there's no gospel. Without it, there's no faith. I will go to Jerusalem, mistreatment, suffered, scourged, crucified, rise from the dead. He did 
then he can say, I told you so. Jasmine Belcher of NPR writes of a gentleman called Sid Radner. Let me tell you a little bit about Sid Radner. He had a lifelong obsession and fascination with Harry Houdini, who I told you earlier died Halloween in 1926. Every year on the anniversary of Houdini's death, he picked up where his wife left off, and Radner tried to contact his hero through what he trademarked as, quote, the official Houdini seance, end quote. He conducted with invited friends. Radner says, Houdini died in 1926, and his wife tried to contact him on the anniversary of his death for 10 years, end quote. Houdini himself had been very passionate about debunking mediums and proved that most were frauds. He promised his wife, Bess, that if it were possible to communicate with the dead, he would come back to her should he die first. He even gave her a code to know that it was him. But as I told you, after 10 years with no success, Bess stopped trying to contact her husband. And at that point, she said, 10 years was long enough to wait for any man, end quote. Radner, however, continued on where Houdini's wife left off doing these seances. In this interview with him, he said, quote, I started doing these seances in 1930, in the 30s, rather. As a matter of fact, I own the trademark, the official Houdini seance. Mr. Radner describes the seances as a group of eight to 12 people sitting around holding hands trying to contact Harry Houdini. One time, Radner says, the medium asked for Houdini to make his presence known, and a gal standing around, her beads broke off and fell on the floor from her necklace. Another time, a book fell down off a shelf. We had strange things happen, end quote. Radner was said to have owned the largest collection of Houdini artifacts. He gave to his, Houdini's brother after he, he willed them to him after his death. He died in 2012, Radner did, and never made contact with Houdini, though he tried every single year on his anniversary. Before his death, Radner said, if I can't contact Houdini, and I've been trying for many, many years, it can't, maybe it cannot be done. But if it does, I want to be there, believe me. His conclusion was correct. He never contacted Houdini. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. Contrary to popular Discovery Channel shows, there are no ghosts walking around the earth. Oh, there may be demons imitating them, but you're judged and that's it. Why could he not contact Houdini? Because Houdini's still in the grave. Even though he said he would conquer death, he didn't. Jesus said he would conquer death. And he did, and it was witnessed. And you know what else he said? I'm going to come back.
I will come back bodily and redeem my people. And for that, believers longingly wait every day. Do we not? Unlike Houdini, Jesus is alive and coming again. Because he said, I told you so. And he did everything he promised. I hope you believe in the resurrection because you believe in his death and his burial and that you've given your life to him. If not, what a great day on Easter to say, I believe who you are and what you said and what you did, Lord Jesus, and I give you my life to follow you because your ways are better than mine and your forgiveness is the only way I'll be saved from hell. If you have questions about that, please don't leave without talking to someone around you or our prayer room or I'd be glad to discuss that with you. Um, do business with God about eternity on this day. Dennis and Kathleen, one of our elders, Dennis is, will be here. Love to pray with you or talk with you. Anything that we can do to, to serve you. And they'd be glad to step in the prayer room and serve you. He is risen. Let's celebrate that together. Father, thank you for the grace that's ours in the resurrection of your son from the dead. Lord Jesus, we believe that because you said you would die and rise, and you did, and now you've said you will come again, we look for you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful Easter Sunday.